they were there when history was made. Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer! The Sports Rackham Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right, down the line, it may go! Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! It's a home run! Go crazy! Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rockin' Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half-century or so of American sports. The baseball postseason starts next week, so we decided to discuss baseball today. But not championship baseball. Far from it, actually. Instead, let's take a look back to 1962, when the New York Mets played their inaugural season. The Mets would win a world championship just seven years later, but you never would have thought that back in 1962, as the team struggled to win just 40 games. Their best pitcher, Jay Hook, knows better than anyone just how frustrating it was to see. Have you ever experienced working with a top team and then move to a different team, whether it's business, sports, whatever, that has its problems? Well, nobody can top the story of our guest, Jay Hook, who was a pitcher initially in the 1961 season with the National League champion Cincinnati Reds and the following season with the 1962 New York Mets. When you learned, Jay, that you were going to be picked up by the Mets, an expansion team, of course, there was no history there. How'd you feel? Were you excited or were you really hate to leave a team that was on top? The World Series finished in 1961. And my wife and I, our kids had gone back with her parents. Uh, Joanne and I were driving back to Northwestern University because I was doing graduate work there. And, and a little Austin Healy. And we heard over the radio that we've been sold to the New York Mets. And, and to be honest, I didn't, at that point, I didn't know much about the New York Mets because uh, it was a new team then in 1962. But then as I heard who was going to be on that team, I thought, wow, you know, that, that and, and actually the 61 season, Steve, I didn't, I didn't play a whole lot during the middle to the latter part of the season because I had contracted the mumps of all things. And it really hit me pretty hard. But, uh, you know, by then I knew who was going to be on the New York Mets. I knew Casey Stengel was going to be managing. And I always had a high respect for Casey Stengel. And and there was Gil Hodges and Duke Snyder and Roger Craig and Charlie Neal and Frank Thomas. And there were a bunch of good players. Now, they were all a number of them were older. But I thought you know, this could be a good opportunity. And New York, I knew New York was a great place to play. And and so I, I thought, well, let's roll with it and uh, do the best we can. You know, I was disappointed at first because I, I loved being on the Cincinnati Reds. 
but this was a new opportunity, so, you know, I, I just rolled with it. <laughs> like you say, on paper, they looked pretty good, and maybe you were hoping something would happen. Like nowadays, the the, the Knights in hockey go in, and the first year they get to the Stanley Cup. Maybe you hit the jackpot. <laughs> that wasn't the case with the Mets, though. <laughs> no, it sure wasn't. It sure wasn't. You know, and in spring training, I was fairly optimistic because these were there, there were a bunch of guys on that team that had been successful. You know, it wasn't like we were just all rookies, you know, and, and uh, it, I, we, I didn't expect us to be as bad as we were. <laughs> well, let's talk a little about that spring training, because you go down there. First of all, Casey Stingle, talk a little about playing for him. You got him in the latter part of his career, but it had to be kind of exciting because this guy knew how to win. Well, he did, you know, and what, he would, he'd been with the Yankees, I think, 10 years at that point, and they, they let him go, I think, because of his age. Because he was 70 years old, I think, that, at that year. And he, he, you know, he knew a lot about baseball. I, I wish I'd have I read his biography. And I, I read it maybe uh, two years ago now. But I wish I'd have read it back when, when I knew him. Because his history was, was really unique. Uh, you know, he started like back in 1910 or something. And, and had played for a number of clubs and done a lot of things. His wife had been a silent movie star, and and they never had any children, and that was one of the relationships that ended up uh, happening with us, with my wife and I, because we had two kids at that time. And Casey and Edna, if they saw us in a restaurant, they'd come over and take our two kids, and they'd sit with Casey and Edna, and we'd eat alone. But <laughs> but he, he, you know, he had an interesting perspective, and you know, he he had that Stingalese that he, you know, he was known for. And, and I analyzed the Stingalese, and, and really I, what, I, what I analyzed was that he would be talking along on a subject and be thinking about the next subject he was going to talk about. And then before he finished the first subject, he'd jump to the second subject. <laughs> and then he'd realize he didn't finish the first subject, so then he'd go back to that. And so it was, what, what it was was a staggering of different ideas <laughs> over the same conversation. Well, what about the camp? I mean, you came from a camp the year before, that ended up going to the World Series. Now you go to this, it's all these people that haven't played together, like you say, there's some veterans there. Did the camp start out good where you feel like, hey, you know, maybe we'll be decent? Yeah, I I, I didn't think we were going to be a pennant winner, but I didn't think we were going to be as bad as we, we ended up. You know, but the great thing about baseball is it's a new game every day. I really thought, and I felt this in the clubhouse, that even though we lost the game... You know, we weren't defeated. You know, right. and I, I later heard someone say, "You know, you're only defeated if you stop doing it." <laughs> and 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 you know, so that I think that's one of the great things about baseball is you can still be optimistic even though you've lost today. Well, that's a good attitude, and you needed it that year. So you go to the polo grounds. Now, at this stage of the game, polo grounds, a lot of history. Well, what was that like? Well, it was it was a difficult park. <laughs> it, uh, it certainly was an old park. It was, I think, the oldest park in baseball at that point. But the, it was it had been a polo field, and so it it was a rectangular kind of field, and so the right and left field lines were really very short. But center field was way out there, and and the left center, right center were. So it it was a different kind of park, and if people pulled the ball, they had a good chance of hitting a home run if it was fairly close to the line because it was pretty short. 
but the rest of it was was quite quite big. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you a quick brief story. We were pitch, we were playing against the Milwaukee Braves, and the bases were loaded. I was pitching. Bases were loaded, and Casey came out, and he used to call me Professor because I was going to college, you know. <laughs> right. And he said, Professor, I pitch him outside and make him hit at the center field. And the next pitch, I threw a low outside fastball. It was about 470 feet to center field. And he hit it about 500 feet to center field for a grand slam home run. About two weeks ago, I I get maybe eight or ten letters a month still from people. That's 58 years ago. And, and, And I still get these letters with baseball cards in them and stuff. And I got this card... And I read the letter, and the guy said, "I'm sorry, I don't have a, I don't have a baseball, one of your baseball cards." He said, "I have this Hank Aaron baseball card," <laughs> and and he said, "And you know, would you be kind enough to sign right under Casey Stengel's arm?" Well, I turned it over, and I had never seen one of these before, and and it it was the home run that he hit off me. In the polo grounds, the center field, the grand slam home run. I don't know. What, I don't know what number was, but it said number whatever it was. Yeah. And 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 then it described this. Well, the guy. I don't know where he ever found that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just kind of rip it up? Oops! It didn't get here. <laughs> no, no. You know, I gave him credit for finding something like that. I signed it and sent it back to. Him. You know, we talk about the polo grounds, and I remember reading stories about the New York Titans, the football team that played in there, and they tell stories like it was falling apart in the locker room. Was it was it really bad there? Do you recall like it was at the end of its career. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it uh it, it was tired. And and really they they really thought that they were gonna have Shea Stadium finished for the second year. But but it didn't happen. And it wasn't until the third year that they that the club got into Shea Stadium. It was it it was tired, and the locker rooms weren't terrific. But one of the one of the things I really felt good about uh, Stephen was Casey Stengel. When I got later on, I got into industry and I got into a whole bunch of other stuff, and and I've used Casey Stengel as an example in in higher education, in business, in the church, because he knew who his customers were. And what he would do, even though it was the locker rooms weren't terrific and his office wasn't terrific, but every game, you know, at that time there were probably 12 or 13 papers in New York. And, and every one of those papers had a writer. And, and at the end of the game, no matter if we lost or played work terrible or won or whatever, he would call those writers into his office after the game. And, and he would get him a beer or Coke or whatever. And, and he would tell stories or, and after half an hour or 45 minutes or whatever they were in there, they had their story written. Well, he knew who his customers were. And the customers were those people that were in the stands every day or the people watching on television or the people that read the newspapers. But the, the news at that time was really the vehicle to get to those people. Yeah. And he made the, the sports writer's job easy, not easy, but a lot easier than it maybe what really was by by doing that, because they always would come out of there and they had their 12 or 13 inches of column, you know, written 
he knew who his customers were. And, you know, I guess in anything, you got to be successful. You better make sure your customers are successful or are happy. And that makes a lot of sense because as a team that's struggling as much as the 62 Mets did, you you don't want to lose any kind of enthusiasm. And I guess his attitude was, well, let's make it fun so people will just understand that this is growing pains and have fun with it. Yeah, I, I believe that. I believe that, Stephen. And, you know, our fans were terrific. I mean, how could you be the worst team ever in baseball and still have fans that, you know, would come out every day and make their banners and, and cheer? And, and you know, it, it was a terrific year. I think we drew, even at the Polo Grounds with a terrible, you know, a losing team. I think, if, I can't remember what the, what the attendance for the year was that year. But the Yankees were doing very well, and and I think our attendance was very close to theirs, if not better. And one of those people that were entertaining, because everybody, if you mention the '62 Mets, they think of marvelous Marv Thornberry, right? What was he? Right. What was he like? I mean, he got fame then, and he got fame later in a Miller Lite beer commercial. But was he as interesting off the field as he was on? Well, I, I'm not sure. I think I think he, I'm not sure if he came out of the Yankee organization. He might have, but he, he joined us during the year. I think I don't think he was there originally. But anyway, <laughs> uh, there's a story with marvelous Marv too. Uh, one day he came to me and he says, "Hook," he says, "You're an engineer, aren't you?" And I said, "Yeah, I took engineering." And he says, "Well, engineers can print real good, can't they?" And I said, "Well, yeah, I took drafting. You know, I I can print pretty good." He, he went to his locker, and above his locker was his name card. And he got, pulled it out of the, you know, it's like they were like in a clamp thing up there. He pulled it out. He got me a pen and turned his, turned his, his name over on this cardboard sheet. And he said, would you print Marvelous Marv? <laughs> and so I printed Marvelous Marv. And then he took it and he put it back. You know, in the sleeve above his locker, and it said "Marvelous Marv." <laughs> <laughs> and that in that game, you know, it, late in the game, he he must have hit a home run or done something that, you know, done it well. And after the game, all these writers came in, and they're all standing around his locker, and they're seeing that they saw this thing, "Marvelous Marv." And the next day, headlines in the paper: "Marvelous Marv did this or whatever." And so I had a little part in in him be, and naming himself Marvelous Marv. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and he understood public relations. I want to know what was going on in your mind because you were a winner in college. You were a winner with the Reds. You go there. It isn't you personally, but it, it, it's got to get to you. Were you starting to, you know, get frustrated, or I was like, oh, what am I doing here? Yeah, that 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 was true. <laughs> but you know, that's where I was. And and I guess the you know you either keep going or you or you get out of there. But but I wanted to keep playing baseball. And uh, uh, but I I think probably probably it has an influence. I I didn't I didn't realize something, Steve, that occurred a couple of years ago. In one of these one of these letters that I would get from people, somebody had analyzed that first year, and they wrote in this letter. That I had, I had lost. I think I lost 19 games that season, and won I think eight, if I remember right. They said that I had lost 13 games by one run. You know, they weren't all 
two to one games. They might have been five to four or four to three or something. But I thought, you know, if I'd have just won half of those games, <laughs> I'd have had a decent year. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I had never I never realized that. I guess I had never sat down and analyzed the the year or anything. But I didn't realize that out of those 19 losses or whatever it was, that I had lost 13 of them by one run. Here's one date that you'll probably remember. April 23rd, 1962, you guys are 0-9. You're on the mound against the uh, Pirates, who uh, were just a couple of years before world champions. Uh, do you remember that night? Because like, you did everything, as I recall, that night. You even did the batting. Yeah, yeah, I remember, I remember pretty well. You know what? And all of the different interviews I've done over the years, that's the only reason I'm getting eight or ten letters a month was that I pitched the first Mets win. You know, it it was. Uh, I think in the, I, I I looked it up when somebody a group was calling me and and I went on the internet and looked up that game because I couldn't remember who the catcher was. It was Chris Canizero, and I couldn't remember if it was he or one of the other guys. And I I looked and they had. Every batter listed, I mean, they went through all nine innings and said what each person did. I, it was kind of fun to go back. I, I, you know, I knew I had driven in two runs with a base hit, like in the second inning. But I, I didn't realize, you know, all the detail of it. Also, you were the losing pitcher when they lost game number 100 uh, against the Phillies. <laughs> but you pitched really good that night, right? Ten innings and you lose three to two? <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the one-run games. <laughs> oh, gosh. And uh, as I recall, somebody telling me that Marv Thornberry fell down trying to make a tag to, as the winning run was scoring. Wow, what a way to lose, huh? <laughs> You know, I, I don't remember that, Steve. <laughs> Sorry to bring that back up. <laughs> you, you put some things out of your mind. Was the 69 Mets, was that team special to you? Because going what you went through, that was the other side of it. Well, the fun part was was to see them do, do well. And and it was it was great to see coming from the 62 when we were the worst team in baseball to 69 when we were the best team in baseball. And a few of the guys were still there. Ed Cranepool was still there. And, you know, a few of their, their big-name guys came after I had left. You know, I, I retired in 1964 and decided I better go to work because we, we didn't make much money then. So, you know, I wish I'd have been born about 40 or 50 years later. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no kidding. Well, the, the, the 69 Mets, did you have a chance to meet people like Tom Seaver or something, or was it just something you watched from afar? Just it was something like you know I was I was into a whole new career, and and so I watched it a little bit on television, but I I didn't I really didn't have an opportunity to go back. I'll tell you a funny story from the year before though, 1968, the Tigers won won the pennant for the American League, and my wife and I were living in a suburb of Detroit, and we went down to one of the World Series games, and and we ran into Casey Stengel at that game. And Casey said, Hook, I understand you got out of baseball. I said, yeah, I did, Casey. I, I uh, tore up my knee trying to take a shortstop out in a double play. He said, how'd you get the first? Casey, uh, when they traded me, said, Jay, he said, you know, we're doing this. We're getting Roy McMillan and uh, whatever on the trade. And he said, my wife's going to kill me when I go home and tell her we traded you because your kids were terrific. <laughs> Jay, thank you so much. Really enjoyed spending some time with you today. Uh, 
We'll have you on again. This was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you. You can hear more with Jay Hook on our expanded podcast, available soon on the Vegas Never Sleeps website, which you should go to. Check out the Sports Rockin' Tour page. You can hear bonus content from this conversation, plus a number of other great sports stories. Follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com.